Now we are in Romans 8 in our series as we go through Romans chapter 6 through 8 as a, a cluster of texts and including today I've got five sermons uh, planned for Romans 8. It's one of the most beloved chapters in all the New Testament. And verse 1, just as you're looking at the text that uh, Jake read to us, uh, chapter 8 verse 1, the therefore is, is pulling together Everything Paul laid down in chapters 6 and 7 about this, this tension, that we're free from sin, and yet we're also still continuing to struggle with it, both. There is therefore, verse 1, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, condemnation comes from sin. It's, it's, if there was no such thing as sin, there would be no such thing as, as condemnation. And as I said last week, the nature of sin is contrarian to the core. So much so that sin, which is not just about uh, something we generate personally, but also as a power at work in the world, and Paul refers to it almost like a, a third person, as if it was an entity all in itself, uh, that, that sin can, can use even the law of God uh, to agitate, to awaken more of itself in us. As Geoffrey Chaucer, the, uh, the 14th uh, century English writer put it, forbid us something and that thing we desire. It's true. But sin is not just contrarian to the law of God. Sin is also contrarian to the grace of God. But in this, a twist in that sin will use condemnation in order to um, blunt the application of grace, to keep us filled with shame. Now, we've got to stay mindful as we deal in this particular text, remembering what's been before in chapters 6 and 7, and even remembering if you've been here since January, where we've been when we started Romans. Our approach to Romans is to take just a few chapters, then do uh, kind of a palate-cleansing uh, series uh, after that and then come back to Romans. So we're taking Romans in five sections. This is the third of five. But we've got to stay mindful as we deal with texts like this. It's real easy to become um, overly dichotomizing, uh, overly this is not that and that is not this. And, and the, we do that with the law of God and the grace of God. Uh, we make them like oil and water and, and they're not. Remember chapter 7 verse 12 Chapter 7, verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And in fact, here uh, in verse 2, here in chapter 8, he likens the work of the Spirit of God indwelling us to a law. Look at verse 2, chapter 8, for the law of the Spirit of life, law language. Why law? Because obedience is still required of us. God has always required of the people he calls to himself obedience. There's been different covenant arrangements for that. Under the Mosaic covenant, the law was the, was the code of obedience. That's what obedience or what law is. Law is simply obedience code. But the law of God given through Moses, it began on a grace note. Remember Exodus? Exodus 19. How on eagles' wings I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, totally by grace. And so it's the grace of God, not just to cover our sinfulness, as we're told over and again has happened in Christ. It's also the grace of God to inform us 
of our sinfulness. We cannot know God's grace without knowing our sin. And the law, Paul says all through Romans, the law given through Moses is the instrument that communicates this to us. And we've tried to establish this as we've gone through Romans. But we've also tried to establish what grace communicates to us. And this is verse 3. God has done, verse 3, what the law weakened by the flesh, that is given to people, could not do. Just look at that. God has done. It's the, it's the but God that we love to run to and for good reason. God has done what the law could not do. What couldn't the law do? It could, it could call us to obedience but could not make us obey from the heart. Only God in grace does that. The law could hold out blessings in return for obedience but could not make us desire obedience. Only God in grace does that. The law could name our sin and could impose its penalty, death, separation from God. The law could name that, impose that, but could not remove that. God in grace does. If you go on in your New Testament to the book of Hebrews, there's a, there's a line in Hebrews 10 that says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Meaning the sacrifices had to keep being done over and over and over again until one comes who fulfills the law and no more sacrifices need to be made. And that takes us to the second part of verse 3. By sending his own son. Second sentence in verse 3. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Sin gets condemned, but the one guilty of it gets to go free. This is God's grace. And this is why there is now, verse 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there's still an expectation of obedience for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul now turns to this in chapter 8 and the, the back half of the book of Romans. He contrasts flesh and spirit here in chapter 8. This contrast between flesh and spirit. I know as Jake read verses 1 through 11, you think, well, you know, could he not could Paul not have just said this in a couple of verses? It seems like he's really, you know, saying this over and over and over again. So why is this contrast between flesh and spirit made over and over? Well, it's, it's about obedience. It says something stupendous to us, really, to say Christ fulfilled the law. And the human tendency looking at that is to say, well, then, then nothing is required of me anymore. And Paul is now saying... Christ has fulfilled the law, and yet obedience is still required. What's gone is the covenant arrangement of obey me in order for me to bless you. That was the law's terms, and no one could meet them due to our sin. No one but one, Jesus. But that arrangement, obey me in order for me to bless you, that arrangement is gone by fulfillment that Jesus obeyed on our behalf. Psalm 40, a psalm I've lived in for the last couple of years, uh, has that great section, verses 6 through 8, that's referring to Jesus uh, as the book of Hebrews uh, applies that passage in Psalm 40 to Jesus. But there's that place in Psalm 40 where it says, I delight to do your will. Your law is written within my heart. 
Of no other person could you ever say that. Not even the lawgiver, Moses, had it written in his heart. Jesus did. And because he obeyed, because God the Son became flesh, sin's days were numbered from that point. He came in flesh to destroy sin by a flesh and blood means. Now that's emphasized to us as well here in verse 3 and 4. And the reason this is emphasized is because God's solution for us, I, I hate putting it in terms of solution, but for lack of a better term, his solution for us was not airdropped from above. It was incarnated, real flesh and blood, life and death in the first century. And so, verse 1 This great line we all love, there is therefore, as a result of Christ coming in the flesh to do something about sin, there is not only no condemnation, but the New Testament goes on to say, book of Hebrews, or book of Ephesians, I should say, that there's every spiritual blessing in Christ, every spiritual blessing in Christ is available to us. And one of those is the desire to obey. And this is why, verse 5, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, I kind of walked you through that uh, a little bit uh, quickly, but this contrast between flesh and spirit is what we really want to see. And just verse 5 is as as good as any in in this passage. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And then the passage goes on making this dominating contrast between flesh and Spirit. But what's this about? Many Christians on through the centuries have ended up with the impression from this language, part of it is how these terms translate into English is is not actually the most helpful English words to convey these realities. I'm I'm going to try to help us with this this morning. But a lot of us have gotten the impression through the years that human flesh itself, the body, is bad. Spirit, good. Body, bad. Or uh, we uh, go with a, a, a similar mistaken notion, the mind is good, you know. And the body is bad. Flesh here isn't conveying this. That's interesting. In the uh, Ken read us uh, Psalm 16 in our in, in our um, call to worship, and Paul and, and David there talks about his flesh, and he is talking about his body, his his physical person. But here in Romans, flesh uh, is is not conveying. Um, your body, your physical person, nor even is, is body in verse 10. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead, what he means by body is the fallen nature that is inhabited by a body. Flesh um, is talking about the fallen human nature, not, not the human body. This is where a lot of heresies uh, end up going wrong. A lot of the things that Christians have dealt with for centuries that is uh, wrong belief uh, come out of making contrasts uh, too contrastive. Uh, 
uh, sort of an over-realized uh, dichotomy between this is not that and that is not this and, and, and we, uh, we don't abide in the tension. And, and what a heresy is, is just a form of Christian belief that subverts or uh, destabilizes or destroys something at the core of Christian belief. And one of the things that's at the core of Christian belief is what? The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So flesh here isn't referring to the human body. It means fallen human nature. It's why we are disposed to sin. If the human body itself was bad, what business does God the Son have taking on a human body. We've got to understand this. He wasn't disposed to sin. He had human flesh, he had a body, but he, he didn't have a fallen human nature. This misunderstanding, the body is bad because the body is, is flesh. This misunderstanding persists. When I was in college, I was engaged in a, a campus ministry there and we played a lot of pickup basketball together. And uh, if things got heated, um, I always w wondered what non-Christians must have thought listening to our Christianese because, you know, when guys would apologize for getting heated, they'd say stuff like, you know, I, I just got in the flesh there, you know. It's like, what does that mean? Well, Christians, we knew what that meant, or at least we were familiar with the Christianese enough to have some conception of it. But what I uh, did not understand at that time is that flesh in Romans 8 doesn't, doesn't, it's not talking about my physical self, my human body, but rather my fallen nature. And by something of default, I'd sort of picked up the notion back then that the life of the mind is where the purer spirituality, you know, is, and, and my body is really in the way. I've long appreciated uh, St. Francis uh, calling his body brother ass. That was his his term in the sense of the mule. That was the mule term. He's stubborn. Uh, he wants what he wants, brother ass. And for reasons, I've appreciated that for reasons that we looked at in the last two weeks in chapter seven. But for a long time coming along, I thought being spiritual uh, necessitated some kind of denial of my embodiedness. You know, that being spiritual was uh, somehow to get above the plane of, of being human. This passage doesn't teach that. Even this language of mind here, verse 5 and following, you get mind, and we think cerebral. We think brain. We think thinking. And we think thinking is, uh, is better. It's, it's purer. You know, we, we talk about the, the we have the mind of Christ. I, I remember when I went to my doctor for, um, to take an antidepressant. And I'm sitting in his office, and he says, I know this is hard for you. He was a Christian. He is a Christian. Still around, still with us. He said, I know this is hard for you because um, you are thinking, and I was, somebody with the mind of Christ shouldn't need this. But he says, the thing you have to understand is your brain is a physical organ, and it's susceptible to illness, and you have no serotonin left because of the way you process stress. And therefore, you need this reuptake, you need this help medicinally. It's true. I had this idea that, that, that 
thinking is purer spirituality. And, and unfortunately, some of this is due, again, to the way that Paul's words translate into English. So when you look at this word mind in this passage, what you need to understand is that it includes our affections and our desires. It includes our loves and our longings, our whole person, in fact. Heart and mind are, are almost synonymous uh, terms in scripture. We, we separate them in, in the way we think about things. My mind is one thing, my heart's another thing. But in scripture, that was not the way they looked at the person. When he says we set our minds on the things of the flesh or we set our minds on the things of the spirit, see it there in verse 5 and it's in the passage ongoing, that's actually closer to how we talk about setting the heart on something. That's what he's getting at. If I said to you, uh, he's got his heart set on making the team, then you know exactly what I mean by that. Uh, it means he's going to put in the work. It means he's going to exhibit determination and grit. He's going to show up early to practice. He's going to stay late. He's going to own the process required of him to make the team because he wants this with his whole person. He's got his, what, heart set on it. That's what the language in these verses is getting at. Mind is really me, all of me, not just some part of me that's more spiritual than the rest of me. It's what's at the core of my affections, down at the, at the, at the molten core of, of, of where uh, my desires are and my longings and my expectations of life, my affections. We talk about that with the language of heart. The word Paul used translates to mind, but it's closer to this way that we talk about it with heart. Because again, heart and mind are virtually synonymous in Scripture. The overarching contrast in this passage, it would make for a nice two headings today, but I'm going to keep it all in just one. Paul keeps this in the same space, and we will too. Contrast between life and the flesh, that is life by the, by the, by the coordinates if, I hope coordinates, as I gave that as the title, I hope that's helpful. Uh, the coordinates of my fallen nature, uh, coordinates are by which you navigate and plot and, and move and, and have your being and all that. And so the overarching contrast in this passage, life in the spirit uh, is, is life or life in the flesh is, is just my fallen nature by life on, on, that, on those terms informed by my fallen nature. And then life in the spirit is life by the coordinates of the way and the truth and the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, his spirit indwells me. Verse 9 says this, the spirit of God dwells in you if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. In order to make me what? Mindful, not cerebrally, though that's part of it. I'm not denying there's not a thinking aspect. But he makes me mindful in my affections, affectionately, which is not sentimentality. We're not talking about some sort of emotional engagement, mere emotions, though emotions are involved. But affectionately means my loves and my longings, my desires, my expectations of life, my whole person living according to the Spirit, as verse 5 puts it. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, which is what? Obedience from the heart. Remember that? Chapter 6, verse 17. 
serving in the new way of the Spirit. Chapter 7, verse 6, and now here in chapter 8, verse 5, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. I obey not to get God's blessing, but from his blessing already given me in Jesus, who personally, in a flesh and blood way, forever removed God's condemnation off of me so that I can love him. If you only feel condemned by someone, you're not going to love them. He removes God's condemnation off, off of me so that I can love him and respond to him trustfully and obediently and ultimately experience glorification in heaven. Mindset in this passage is not thinking our way to holiness. Our, our assumption that our thinking is where pure spirituality inhabits, no. You can have all the right views and not obey. And in fact, the evangelical church has often been a safe harbor for people who want to have all the right views and not obey. The contrast here is between a way of life according to the guidance, the dictates of my fallen human nature, which comes natural to me, and is in earnest opposed to God, even if I am capable of choosing and, and affirming good things. The contrast between that and a way of life according to something definitive in the person of Jesus, his way, his truth, his life. The Spirit of God indwells me to keep me in earshot of Jesus, to keep me responsive to Jesus, to keep the light turned on to him. But all this inhabits the same space. And this is why, going back to chapter 7, we talked about tension. That for us in Christ, there's tension. Tension between I'm free from sin and yet I'm still drawn to sin. And all that we went through in chapter 7. But when you contrast this with those who set their minds on the things of the flesh. And for just categorical purposes, a non-Christian. Paul has that in mind, the non-Christian as he writes this. The Christian is this way, the non-Christian is this way. And that this orientation of life, the coordinates are by, uh, for a non-Christian, the, the only coordinates for life and living is according to my fallen nature only. That doesn't mean their conscience doesn't work well or they're incapable of anything good. We saw in chapter 2 that, that conscience works in all people, redeemed and fallen, or redeemed and unredeemed, I should say, all are fallen. But Christians can also live by the coordinates of our fallen nature. See Romans 7. I can seem rather uncoordinated with God at times. Or I can seem unmoored. Or I can have this area of my life that I don't want God messing with. I don't want him touching I can go adrift if I, if I give in to temptation, if I don't fight a good fight against sin, but, but fall for it, want it. If you notice verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. These are ultimate ends. Verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh, the ultimate end is death. Set the mind on the spirit, the ultimate end is life and peace. Not, not serenity or the absence of suffering now. In fact, uh, we'll bring this out later as we go on through Romans 8. Christian spirituality in, it involves and expects a measure of suffering. 
We will get to this uh, down in verse 17. Uh, we will suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Verse 18, uh, chapter 8, verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's not, this is not a contradiction to life and peace in, in verse 6. What happened to my life in peace, you know? I come to Christ and, and I've got conflict. Uh, I've got family members who don't understand. I've, I've got uh, a boss that wants me to not uh, practice Christian integrity in, in the business, etc., and, and so on. Life and peace at the end of verse 6 is not the absence or conflict or struggle uh, or uh, absence of struggle or suffering in the one who sets his or her heart on owning God's ownership of us through Jesus. And because there's no condemnation, and because verse 6 says the mind on, uh, set on the spirit is life and peace, that means that suffering is also not punishment. Again, we'll talk more about this when we get later on in the chapter. But what is being communicated to us in verse 6 is, is the basis for and the end goal of life in Christ. I have been placed in Christ in order to have peace with God. And someday when I am with him and, and everything is unfiltered and the film on everything that sin is, is gone, I'm glorified. That's why he says down in verse 18, the sufferings of the present time aren't worth comparing to what is ahead for us. Ultimately then, I want everything Jesus wants for me, but now I get to practice this. And yes, some days it slogs along and it feels more like Romans 7 than Romans 8. But you look at verse uh, 6, now look at verse 7. The mind that is set on the flesh, hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Ultimately, I will want what Jesus wants for me if the Spirit of God indwells me. I may fight him at times. That's chapter 7. I may be oblivious to myself in ways, but to belong to Jesus is to set my heart on what Jesus wants for me. That's what this passage is telling us, that the want to will emerge. It will happen. Uh, and this is not so much the want to is not because I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just will myself to experience, you know, more of, of God. I'll just make myself. It happens because there's this sea change in my desires. I, I want to own his ownership of me, not because I'm being driven to this by an external moral code that I better follow or else, but because grace gets into my affections. Jesus' accomplishments for me make me want to render to him what is his, and that's me, not just my mind, my heart, soul, mind, strength, because Jesus obeyed on my, on my behalf in real time, real flesh and blood time. He took on flesh so that I could, verse 4, walk, not according to the flesh, that is my fallen human nature, but according to the Spirit, his way, his truth, his life in me. In ultimate terms of this passage, I want this, even if I struggle at times. I want to meet the expectation of obedience ongoing. 
I know God requires obedience from me, but now I know in Christ, this side of the cross, there's a completely different motivational structure for this. I will experience conflict in my desires. Yes, we saw it in chapter 7. But the answer is not deny my desires, act like I don't want what I in fact do want. Desire has to be cruciformed. It has to be shaped by the cross, which is never about self-denial for its own sake, but about making more of Jesus' grace and power. If you're living according to the flesh, the best you can do is going to be limited by your fallen nature, and your fallen nature is a great weight. Someone sent me an article last month it was an opinion piece, and it was critiquing the advent of uh, these uh, podcasts. This guys like Joe Rogan and, and others who have these um, amazing followings, millions, uh, listen to these uh, podcasters, and they, they all have in common, they, they preach uh, the, the, the way to be the very best version of, of ourselves. Uh, the article was called, The Podcast Bros Want to Optimize Your Life. And some popular podcasters, TED Talkers, writers, they preach self-actualization. And they're very popular uh, because uh, they, and, but when you, when, you kinda, when you do an assessment of what they're teaching, there's uh, a view of human nature based more or less on evolutionary psychology. You've got a stoic kind of philosophy. You've got a do-it-yourself spirituality that tends to trend Buddhist because Buddhism is the most malleable to kind of whatever you want it to be. All of this in the interest of, of becoming your best self. These guys are wildly popular. And so, for instance, if you, if you listen to them, you know, how does one practice self-control? Self-control is a big issue, and the self-helpers want to help us with self-control. And, and the gospel is concerned with self-control. Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. But it works best... Those in Christ realize, come to realize, if you don't realize it already, self-control works best, not simply as a lockdown self-denial, but a giving myself because of love, out of love, to love for one who wants better for me than I want for myself. The podcast bros advance a, a very um, self-controlled kind of self-control. In other words, you will have to master your evolutionary programming. And they've got rituals and rules and, and ways for you to do that. But evolutionary psychology is the secular answer to the doctrine of original sin. Another example, anxiety. Why are so many modern people haunted by anxiety even though we've never had it better in terms of what modern conveniences allow? And we're, we're troubled in paradise, you know. The podcast bros... Strict daily regimens, non-Western diets, medicines, fasting is a big deal right now, uh, meditative practices. You don't need a therapist before whom you're going to just sit and blame everybody else in your life anyway, you know. You need to go on a vision quest. They offer regimens. They offer hard and fast rules for life. Earlier this year, I read uh, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. I was curious. And I found some commendable insights. I'll take wisdom wherever I can get it. If it's, if, it's, if it's truth, it's God's truth. All truth is God's truth. But I also found 
at the end of the book, it's just a better kind of lostness. It's just a better quality of lostness. Uh, and I don't, I'm not demeaning the man in saying that, but if you're familiar with the ancient church debates between Augustine and Pelagius, uh, if you're not, you can look it up later. I, I found what Jordan Peterson does is he undoes his Augustinian diagnosis of the problem with people, which is typically right, with Pelagian rules. You can fix yourself. Just follow these rules. That's not redemption. The coordinates of fallen human nature dumps us into strategies that end up emphasizing, you know, we need to master our evolutionary programming so we can get on the path to becoming successful, materially successful, metaphysically successful, though all these podcast guys, they always downplay the material success. It won't matter to you when you have it, but by all means get it because how else are you going to afford your trips to South Africa and South America for the mushroom coffee that detoxifies you and sit with the Amazonian shaman and talk about, you know, life. What is all that? To put it in terms of these verses, it's the attempt to reign in the flesh by means of something other than the Spirit of God. And I tell you, one of the reasons all that is really popular is because people look at the church and where is the power of God over changed lives? Why is the church just like everybody else? It's an indictment in reality. And it indicts me as well. The attempt to reign in the flesh by means of something other than the Spirit of God indwelling you and obeying Him. Well, if, if I didn't have that, I would be listening to these guys too. I would be taking notes. Why not? There's a crying need for direction and wisdom and, and something that seems to work. Verse 9, you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God lives in you, well, how do I know if He does? Rest of verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. How, how would I know that? Ultimately, I want what Jesus wants for me. That's how I know. You can fake obedience, but you can't fake desire. Ultimately, how I know I'm in Christ is I love him and I want what he wants for me and I want it according to his way, his truth, his life. That doesn't mean I can't learn anything from non-Christians. Of course I can learn from non-Christians. There's some quality non-Christians out there to learn from. I'll take wisdom again wherever I can get it. But all non-Christians, and I don't say this dismissively of them, but as stating a fact, all they really have to commend are best self techniques and self-help initiatives and biohacks. Designer strategies for thinking more clearly, sleeping more soundly, engineering higher levels of success, however that's defined in the moment. The contrast Paul makes in our passage, it seems really simple on paper. I've got my flesh, fallen human nature, subject to sin's appeal, and then I've got the Spirit of God, which is not subject to sin, but who makes much of Jesus Christ, making everything about his way, his truth, his life appealing to me over time. That seems a simple contrast. On paper it is. In life and living, it's, it's more complex. We know this. But Paul says so here. This is why there's so many competing philosophies of life out there and biohacks and and other strategies for overcoming ourselves and optimizing this one life that we have in the hopes that we can become the very best versions of ourselves we can be. 
And people want this because everybody realizes there's, there's this contest of good and evil in us, but anybody who's honest, anybody who gets regularly downwind of themselves realizes we've lost the contest to evil already. Chapter 7 is brutally honest about this fact. That even when I want to do right, even when I agree with God that his way and his will is better for me, sin still launches as assault. It, it, it otherwise makes its appeals. And, and if sin will even use the law of God to assert itself, then it will also sabotage my best biohacks. Why? The mind of the flesh is death. But, verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, that is, by, by body he means our bodies inhabit our fallen nature. If the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your what? Mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. You never long to get rid of your body. You long to get rid of your fallen nature. We long to experience the glorification of our bodies. When everything wrong with ourselves is made right and new. And this we experience, we get to experience because of Jesus' flesh and blood victory over everything our flesh opposes of God and wants for ourselves for our own detriment. This is why the gospel is incredibly good news. Why the cross was a good thing, even though it was a heinous thing, and why the table that we're going to share moments from now speaks to us such a good word of the glory that we've been brought in on. The choir is about to sing an anthem. Look at the words they're going to sing. It's next in your bulletin under the sermon. Once in darkness, now in light. Once blind, now you see. Once a sinner, now a saint. Once bound, now free. This table that we will take after the choir sings is about this reality, the power of the cross. The chains have fallen. Praise be to God.